you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 311 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Philip Hoots is the VP of Engineering at Club Collect, a fintech startup in Amsterdam. He is a Pareto product programmer, and don't worry, listeners, we'll definitely cover that concept. He is a remote advocate and a self-proclaimed dietant. We met recently at Paris RB 2020. It's great to talk to you again, Philip. Thank you. You too. It's great to be on the show. Uh, greetings from the Netherlands. So the developer origin story, my dad always had computers around the house, uh, mostly for like accounting. Um, I can remember a big book on like Lotus 123, the precursor to Excel. Um, and we played a lot of computer games back then. I can remember playing Snake and Barrel and all of the things we now play on our phones with no problem. But then they were like the best things on the computer. So it was kind of always around. And then um, as I got a bit older into my teenage years, I can remember a friend of mine in English class. Like he was like, hey, Poots, you got to have a look at this. Um, I've, I, I built my own website. I was like, okay. So we had a look and it was just a site to put up uh, reviews of games. Uh, that he'd put together and and I was like yeah this looks amazing and secretly I was thinking I could probably do a better job um, <laughs> so that's when I kind of got into HTML and CSS uh, as a teenager and that kind of was always in the background I went to university um, in Scotland started playing a lot of rugby there and at one point the rugby club needed a website uh, so being the person that knew a little bit of HTML and CSS I was like okay I'll uh, I'll volunteer for that and back then, like it was literally just static using Dreamweaver to put together pages and stick them via FTP on, on, on a web host. And then I got to the point where I was doing like player profiles and I really wanted like some kind of templating. And I knew that like something had to be possible. Um, so I, you know, I did a little bit of research. Okay, PHP, PHP includes, no problem, get it up. And then I started thinking, okay, well, what I, what I want to do, I could make this into like a pretty cool site. And uh, being like really curious and wanting to get to the bottom of things, I actually bought a bunch of PHP books. This was like, I think spring 2007, um, with the plan to like read them all uh, during the summer uh, break. And before it got to the summer break, I, I saw a small 15 minute video about how to create a blog in 15 minutes with Ruby on Rails. And I was pretty much sold. Um, I threw out the PHP books and I started uh, learning Ruby on Rails. And, and, and that's, yeah, that's, that's how I get into programming. That's absolutely amazing. And I'm pretty sure you are my third guest on the show in a row to mention the 15-minute blog series. So. <laughs> yeah, so there was also another video I saw because I looked into everything and the three kind of, or the two really main things that came up were, were PHP and Java, like Java for more the business side and PHP for more the website. And I remember seeing a video as well with Java compared to Ruby. And it was like, you know, I don't, I don't even remember, like, you know, public void main print ln or system print ln hello world and then the next slide was like ruby puts hello world and i like i was just like yes this is this looks like my kind of thing that's awesome so has ruby on rails been the focus of the majority of your web developer career yeah pretty much so since since 2017 i i got i got a um a job in 2019 so actually in the north i was in the north in scotland first and then i moved to the northeast of england 
Um, and it was actually pretty difficult at that point to find a job in Reels in the UK. You either had to go down to London, which I wasn't very keen on, um, or what I probably should have done is like applied to somewhere in America, like Twitter or GitHub before they were huge, right? Um, so, so I, I started a .NET job and I'd never done anything apart from Reels. So doing the .NET job actually gave me that experience of how horrible and terrible it is to program without Rails, especially at that point, right? Because we're talking, I don't know, Windows or, or I don't know what .NET had at the time. They didn't even have ASP.NET MVC. It was literally web views. It was it was just a mess. And, and I was like, the things I was building, I was like, I could do this in a couple of weeks with Rails. Why am I spending like three months? So I, I quickly got out of that, found a job uh, with a company who'd actually started very early with a pre-1 version of Rails. But I think the version at that point was 1.2.3. Um, and so I worked on that for a couple of years. Then I moved to Sage, an accounting company. That's where we did like the Rails 2 to Rails 3 upgrade. Um, moved to Givi, like a funding platform for, for charitable enterprises. And uh, that was mainly Rails. The only thing there was we moved from like Postgres to doing MongoDB and then moved very quickly back again. <laughs> um, and then moved to funding gits where it was a Rails backend and an Ember.js frontend. And, and where I am now at Club Collect is also um, mainly Rails. Uh, yeah, so so pretty much 10 years of Rails with uh, little ventures here and there out to other things. Oh, I think that's a really fascinating background. And I love the fact that you have prior experience with a different language and a different framework so you can truly appreciate all that Rails can give you. I'm at the point where I think I'm going to have to start producing patches for developers who have done the Rails 2 to 3 upgrade or the Rails 3 to 4 upgrade, <laughs> just because I feel like it's a badge of honor at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And luckily, we're very spoiled now as Ruby on Rails developers where these upgrades aren't nearly as um, tough as they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I got to ask you a little bit about this in person when I met you at Paris RB, but I'd love to hear all about Club Collect and what your role of VP of engineering means to you. Yeah, sure. So um, in many ways, the role of VP in engineering is, and at Club Collect is, is very much a dream job for me. So I actually started at Club Collect as, as a developer in, in, in the Ruby team. Um, and, and then, you know, I'm very grateful to, to Adam Posma and Eric van Eichelen, the co-founders. So Eric was the CTO and um, he decided to take a step back from operations. He loves being involved in companies at the early stages. Um, and and he asked me to 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 basically step into his position. Um, so he's still acting CTO and he's still like a signing board. But then I'm like handling day to day operations uh, within the engineering team. And and the reason I like it is the reason I'm always attracted to startups is to be in an environment where you're wearing a lot of different hats and you're involved in a lot of different things with the goal obviously to have uh, uh, as big an impact as possible. This is versus, you know, my experiences in smaller companies, or sorry, in larger companies where you have a smaller role and a smaller impact. And um, it really frustrates me when you get, you know, um, specs through from someone, two or three people removed from you with things in them where you think, you know, if we just change this little bit and that little bit, we could have this done in a couple of days. But the way it's written, it's going to take two weeks. And then to suggest it and to get the answer back, no, this is the way we're going to do it. You know, that kind of waste um, and eliminating that waste is why I really like working in the startup environment. And um, so, so the day, you know, the day to day is, is very varied and, and, um, 
anything from talking to the rest of them, like the management team or the leadership team, you know, sales, customer operations, uh, customer success, um, the CFO, you know, about long-term strategies, about short-term things that we're going to be doing, um, to like the nitty-gritty of domain name um, stuff. Uh, f- figuring out like DMARC and, and all the security stuff that comes along with the role. But, but really the thing that I love the most about being a VP of engineering is, is the people. Um, so Eric kind of laid down a very good developer led culture within the team. We, we are, I don't know if anyone's read the, the, the book, uh, how not to be crazy at work by 37 signals. Um, and, and their concept of a calm company. I guess base camp they're called now. Um, their concept of a calm company, you know, where you're working 40-hour weeks, where you're not like saying that everything is the most important thing, um, where you essentially, I boil it down to where you respect people for who they are and you don't um, place uh, unreasonable burdens. And and one of the big things is Eric said down a culture of focus. Um, so you're allowed to be offline and to focus on the problem at hand and to get the problem done. Um, so all of the team are remote. I think that helps a lot. Um, all of the engineering team, at least, the rest of the company are based in Amsterdam. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's, that's like the, yeah, the big thing for me is the people. So, you know, as everyone knows, with the COVID-19 pandemic going on and so many workers are now transferring to remote, as someone who is managing remote workers, do you actually have any advice to managers out there who are managing remote workers for the first time? Yeah, so I think this is probably going to come across as uh, as very stupid advice to to people who have worked remote and and people who haven't worked remote will also kind of look at me strange but the most important thing that you can do when you have remote workers is to trust them and i i still can't get my head around the fact that there are bosses who hire people that is they enter a contract with someone to pay them money to do something and then their automatic thought is, if I don't watch everything they do, then they're not going to hold up their part of the bargain. I think like letting go and trusting that people are going to work in, in their best interests and also in the best interests of the company is, is, is like the number one uh, piece of advice that I could give. I mean, even in our company, like we, we had a meeting last week to decide what we were going to do with, uh, with, Uh, the situation and obviously you know everyone's going to work from home like that's the advice from the government that's what we're going to do and then the first thing is yeah but we got to know that these people are working and it's kind of you know the face palm and then you try and bring people to this frame of mind but yeah i think that's a difficult switch for some people i think when you're based in a command and control structure like uh, maybe maybe it's just developers right that that they enjoy programming that they love what they do and that they don't necessarily need any external motivation like their intrinsic motivation is high enough to to keep on the job and that's not to say that i haven't had problems with 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 employees or with colleagues that that aren't pulling their weight uh, but I think you should definitely give people the benefit of the doubt and 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 operate on in in an environment of trust. 
I completely agree. And sometimes the best advice is the most obvious advice. And I think a lot of managers out there will say that they trust their employees. But I think you would agree that actions speak louder than words. And so it's really what the managers are acting upon to show the developers that they truly trust them and creates that environment. So I did want to touch upon something that I talked about in your bio. What does being a Pareto product programmer mean? Sure. So, so this is something I, I mean, I don't know if I coined it, maybe that maybe there are other people who use this phrase, but, um, it was, it was really, we were going to have a meetup. Um, we have, so because we're remote, we have a, at least once a year, we meet up in December and normally we have a day within the, just with the developers together where we kind of give talks to each other. So we share things we've learned. We share kind of, um, you know, what we're looking forward to, et cetera. And so my talk, that I gave was was basically on this concept of a, a Pareto product programmer, and and what I mean by that. So the so Pareto that's that's the Pareto principle, probably known to most of the people listening by the eighty twenty rule. So the idea that that eighty percent of the value is produced by twenty percent of the effort, and and this just to be straight, this isn't an encouragement for everyone to slack off and work at twenty percent, um. But it's about it's it's focused on the value and 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 focused on the trade off between investment and return, and and so I was trying to think like what what um, you know are there any examples that I can think of? And one of those was we had an issue where we had a really slow query in our admin database or in our admin environment. Sorry, and you know we had a massive issue. We did all the Postgres. Uh, um, analysis we could figure it out okay we need this index we need that index okay we need to oh well, maybe it's a good idea to add this extension to postgres to get this uh, this um this query like optimized and and doing total performance and and then one of the guys was like hey um first of all like how many times do we get this query in you know it was oh it's quite a lot and then it was like okay let's look at the logs like what are people searching for and you know they're searching for 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 these like invoice installments uh, based on on their ID, and the problem was we actually had an I like so we were partially matching the ID, but when we examined the logs, we were actually only ever searching by the full ID. Like uh, someone was only ever inputting the full ID into the search box. So instead of doing all of the hard work to to get the query optimized, we just said, okay, we're going to make it impossible to search for 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 an ID partially. We're just going to make sure that it's the full ID. And if it's not the full ID, we're not going to do the search. So, so like that's an example of always thinking about like what precisely are you trying to achieve? What is the context context that you're achieving it in? And and are those two in proportion? Um, you know, because so Goodhart's law, I think it is, um, which boils down to when when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure, like the idea of proxy goals. So it's always trying to ask yourself, am I optimizing for the proxy or am I optimizing for the real goal? And that requires a great deal of um, involvement in the product process. So that's the second bit, the product programmer. Like there are programmers that are really good, like working at the low level. There are programmers that are really good and um, focusing on just the business logic. There are programmers that are very good on um, kind of being a bit of a generalist and all rounder. And and at Club Collect, like what we want is is are are people who are involved in the product process and uh, we don't really have a need to do like the the, the deep the deep engineering stuff it, it's very much still 
on the road to product market fit. And in that case, like listening to your customer, understanding your customer, understanding the context of your software is is the most important thing. And, and that's what you should be concentrating on. And so it's, yeah, it's kind of a well-rounded programmer with a focus on product and always thinking about what's what's the shortest path to providing customer value without like hacking your way there. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic and something I've always believed in and now I'm really excited to have a very simple term to describe it. So let's dive into your talk, Rediscovering Ruby. I'm going to read the abstract for the listeners. This is the talk that Philip gave at Paris RB. Is it possible to fall out of love with a programming language? The seven-year itch led me away from Ruby, enticed by languages that promised to give me what Ruby couldn't. Come and listen to a journey in search of productivity, efficiency, and effectiveness, which led to some interesting places. From back end to front end and back again, from framework to brainwork, from ease and complexity to difficulty and simplicity, from Rails to Ember to Elm to Ruby, a newfound appreciation for what was always there but lay unnoticed. So, Philip, can you please give me a shortened recap of your transition from Rails to Ember to Elm to Ruby? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so, um, like I, th I th you know, I, I think that this isn't actually a story that's uncommon to a lot of uh, Rails programmers. And there was a time, I think, uh, Yehuda Katz gave a talk. I'm not quite sure when it was, but it was like Rails the next five years, and Yehuda's big. Um, focus at that time was Rails as an API. And it was an acceptance of the fact that the web development world in general was moving away from just pure server-side rendered apps towards these rich interactive UI experiences. And this is something that I experienced. Obviously, I started with Rails whenever we were doing like UJS uh, with Prototype and Scriptaculous, I think. Then that was all like thrown out in favor of um, using jQuery on, you know, there's a jQuery understanding with the Rails backend for submitting forms, et cetera. And I was at a startup where um, the boss really wanted like these rich interactive UI experience. We started out with Backbone, which was really nice, really simple, but quickly got out of hand in terms of managing that complexity. And Ember was coming out of someone from the Rails core team and, uh, had a lot of promise, you know, they, they really did a good job on their marketing side, um, as well as bashing Backbone um, a little unfairly. Um, they, they painted a very nice picture of what Ember could bring. They were painting it as the Ruby on Rails for the front end. And so I, I, I kind of dove in and it, it looked good. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I mean, maybe like a lot of Ruby programmers, I don't know. I don't care much for JavaScript. So it was for me something to take away the need to actually learn JavaScript um, and to give me a framework where I could do the high level stuff without getting to the low level. And, and you know, Ember's great. You can build a lot of good stuff with Ember. Um, I met some really great people in the Ember community, but ultimately Ember came up short for me personally and in the context that I was using it in. And that was maybe partly because I got on very early and things were changing a lot, partly also because I never really felt comfortable with JavaScript and, and um, partly also because, you know, what I've seen, the great success stories with Ember are, are geared very much towards uh, bigger companies that have bigger teams that can kind of amortize the cost of constant upgrading and um, by you know assigning one team member of a very big team to kind of handle that and um and so 
yeah, I was, you know, you looked around at that time and, and React was kind of on the up and I looked into React and again, this, you know, the feature of my diving into things uh, with a lot of curiosity led me to, you know, the React rendering model and to Redux and Redux led me to Elm. Um, and, and I remember looking at Elm and I thought, whoa, this is really different. And I remember reading more about Elm and thinking, wow, this is incredibly simple. Um, not necessarily simple in the sense of like the, the the concepts or the primitives that they use are very straightforward to understand. Um, although learning functional programming and learning Elm uh, is you know is a challenge when you're coming from a purely object oriented background. And and yeah, I really enjoyed it and and dove into to learning Elm and that was you know that was something actually that and and the, getting back now to the original question to the talk that was something that. That actually, when I after having learned, learned Elm, I went back to my Ruby and and I discovered a world of Ruby um, outside of Rails, and and not just outside of Rails. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I did for Club Collect after learning Elm was very much within the context of Rails. But I was kind of like my mind was decoupled from Rails in a sense. Like I wasn't bound by Rails um, structure and by the constraints that Rails gives you. I, I felt the opportunity to become uh, free from some of those things and to develop much better and, and more appropriate solutions to problems. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break from a word from our sponsor, ExpressVPN. On the other side, I'm going to be diving into more questions about Philip's talk. Okay, so we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But here's something you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole week, I've been using ExpressVPN to binge Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australian Netflix. It's so simple to do. I just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change my location to Australia, refresh Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC Player, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash Ruby, and that is R-U-B-Y, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash Ruby. Thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring the show. And we're back. At the conference, your talk got a ton of positive feedback, but the interesting part was the number one question you got was around Elm. Why do you think that was? Yeah, so I, like to be honest, I should have seen that coming, um, but I didn't, so I was a little taken aback, and I probably should have done a lot more prep for, for that side of the questioning. Um, I think, so Elm is... Like it's just very hip, right? It's 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 kind of the thing that everyone knows, like is good, but it's not at a level or 
you know, popular is the wrong word, but it, it's, it hasn't received enough mind share that it's like a default go-to choice simply because the investment to start using it um, in a wholesale way is, is, is higher. It's actually very easy to get started with using Elm and I would recommend like choosing a little bit of your JavaScript world um, and, and just trying out like a very simple uh, feature with it. But, but in turn, you know, and I think a lot of individuals like it, like it's very much developer led in the sense that a developer hears about it, a developer finds it interesting, but then it's difficult for him to get buy-in in his company and to start using it. And and, as, and I think the last thing as well is in many ways, you know, Haskell is held um, as like the esteemed language to which every developer should at one point in their life aspire to. And, and Elm has a little bit of that uh, allure um, without necessarily being anywhere near as complex as Haskell. I completely agree. And a lot of the audience members were looking for kind of a hack in order to learn Elm quickly. And I think to your point, it is a functioning programming language. You basically have to relearn how to program in order to make it make sense for you. And it does require a massive refactor of your code base should you want to implement it into a production code base. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that, that that's often uh, raised, and, and that's rightfully so if you're not heavily invested, is um, not everyone enjoys the interop with with javascript and and the reason is maybe because you have to share the dom which is difficult or or just because because elm is by default as you know pure in the sense that it 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 pushes all of the errors to the side um you know you've got to bear that burden of translating your javascript safely um and that's you know, that's work that you wouldn't have to do in JavaScript and feels like extra work. Although, you know, my argument and the argument is obviously that you're getting the benefits of uh, almost zero runtime errors if, if you do that kind of work. No, oh, you're totally right. So as someone who's been in the community so long, what are your thoughts on the future of the Rails and Ruby communities? Yeah, so so that, that's a really interesting question because... Um, Firstly, for me, because I've done a bit of a U-turn in some ways, like I kind of had not given up on Rails, but certainly I'd started looking elsewhere um, to to see, you know, what was happening. And, and I've actually come back to Ruby and to Rails, um, as I think many have, or, or many have never left, right? Um, and I think actually the future is really bright. I think we saw that at the conference in Paris was that morning, the morning I gave my talk. I mean, they must have planned this, but a lot of the talks were simply about doing Ruby without Rails, for example. We had to talk about Rhoda. We had to talk about Hanami. Um, with my talk, which was focused on on not using Rails. And and part, part of me thinks that the future of Ruby is also a future without Rails. And I don't mean that Rails is going to go away. But I think that people are going to be freer to use um, the best tool for the job, so to speak, or a more focused tool for a certain job. Um, although I can't help but thinking that it's going to continue at the same level or decrease rather than increase. Um, no, those are some really honest thoughts. I appreciate that. And I agree with you that I think that 
I think the Rails community will continue to be strong, and I think the Ruby community will be continue to be strong, but there's possibility that there won't be as much crossover as there is now. Uh, for example, just finding Ruby people who only do DevOps work with Ruby, or finding people who only do Rails work and don't quite understand the nuance that Ruby can give you, mm-hmm. or have never tried something like Padrino or Sinatra or Hanami. Yeah, yeah, and 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 one thing that I find often helpful when judging these things is, like, I forgot, I I couldn't find the name of the law. I wanted to look it up, but there is a law which says, um, the longer something is still around, the longer it will be around, almost like a reverse half life. And so in that case, like Ruby and Rails are definitely going to be around for another ten years, no no problem. Um. And 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 Ruby in Ruby's case probably twenty five years, um, but but whether it it continues to grow is is another question, um, and I think so. This is controversial, and some of my Elixir developers may take this cause up with me, but I genuinely still think that Ruby on Rails is the fastest way to get an MVP together to prove business questions. Uh, with technology, uh, partly because of the framework and partly also because of the ecosystem built up around the framework. That's great. So, Philip, how can our listeners follow you? Good question. I, I don't really put much of myself uh, about. I quit Twitter a while back after reading uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, so I'm on GitHub, Putz Book. Uh, that's Putz, my last name, with book, as in the one that you read. Um and I do have a blog, although I haven't written in like 10 years, maybe. I don't know. Is it 10 years? It's probably less than 10 years. Uh, crossingtheruby.com. Um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Philip. You provided so much great advice, whether or not you thought it was controversial or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you listeners for tuning in and we'll be back with you next week. Thank you very much, Brittany. Really appreciate it being on the show.